Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later, I'll be talking to our Middle East analyst, Michael Johnson, about the latest sensational developments in the story of the murder of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. But first this week, we're talking once again about Brexit, and in particular the pressure on British Prime Minister Theresa May as she tries to keep her negotiating strategy on track in the face of mounting criticism from the pro-Europe and Eurosceptic wings of the Conservative Party. Will Mrs May still be at the helm when the good ship United Kingdom sails away from the European Union next March? Dennis Staunton, our London editor, may not have a definitive answer to that question, but there is plenty he can tell us about the political manoeuvrings in London this week, and he joins me now. Dennis, Theresa May gave the House of Commons an update on Monday on the Brexit negotiations and where Britain stands. What were the key points of that statement and did it change anything in terms of the UK position? What she told the House of Commons was that the deal is 95% done and that 5% really uh, is all about the Northern Ireland backstop. And she said that uh, there are four steps that uh, needed to be taken to solve the issue, issue as far as she was concerned. First of all, uh, Britain's proposal for a UK-wide customs backstop that would see uh, the UK and the EU in a joint customs territory rather than hiving Northern Ireland off into uh, the European Customs Union, that, uh, that this ought to be made legally binding and put into the withdrawal agreement. Secondly, she said that uh, the UK should have the option to extend its transition period beyond uh, December 2020, which is the shut-off date as of now, if it wanted to, which she said, I'm not proposing it, I don't want it, but you know we, we should have the option. And then there should be an escape clause, uh, which would mean that basically uh, the UK wouldn't be stuck in some kind of backstop, whatever form it takes, uh, indefinitely. And so there ought to be some kind of mechanism, even if it's not an actual time limit, there should be a mechanism which uh, by which they would be able to say, look, we've now satisfied whatever the demands are and it's time to move on out of this backstop. And finally, uh, and rather curiously, she said, that uh, the UK guarantees, it continues to guarantee full access for Northern Ireland businesses to the market and the rest of the United Kingdom. So what this really did was that Downing Street was spinning it as being a really very tough uh, toughening up of the line, because what she was saying was, according to them, that uh, this uh, the Northern Ireland only backstop, which is the original EU backstop, which says that if you, there is no other solution found to keep the border open, that uh, Northern Ireland would remain in regulatory alignment and in a customs union with the European Union. And she had already said that wasn't acceptable. And what she now was saying is that that can't be Uh, that can't appear in the withdrawal agreement in any form. This at least is what Downing Street was spinning, although it's not precisely what she said. And what the Europeans had been working towards was the idea that, you know, they could negotiate some kind of UK-wide customs arrangement, but that uh, that couldn't sit in the withdrawal agreement, which is the legally binding part, that you'd have the Northern Ireland-only backstop in the withdrawal agreement, and then you'd have some kind of a uh, a reference out of that saying, uh, but we will have this uh, UK-wide customs union, and uh, and so uh, so she's saying, well, you know, I won't accept the uh, you know the Northern Ireland only backstop in any respect. So that would appear to put her on a collision course with the European Union. But having said that, 
Uh, it certainly was enough to, you know, to keep her backbenchers happy yesterday. But it also, I think, leaves just a tiny amount of wriggle room, which could get her back into the negotiations in the next few weeks and maybe even get a deal. Yeah, can you can you explain that a little further, Dennis? Because you wrote an analysis of her statement in the Irish Times today, and and I, I thought it was very interesting. You picked up on something that I, I I didn't really see anywhere else, and and it was that point that you think she left a little more room for manoeuvre on the question of a Northern Ireland backstop than met the eye. Yes, what she said was, uh, you know, the words she used was that uh, this should be uh, that the UK wide. Uh, uh, customs arrangement should be made, made legally binding so that there would be no need for the Northern Ireland only backstop. And I asked a number of times, does when she says, uh, you know, no need, does she mean that, uh, you know, it ought to be wiped out completely from, uh, from the, the withdrawal agreement? Uh, or does she mean, or could it be interpreted as saying, so that this uh, Northern Ireland only backstop is rendered redundant, that it will never have to be used? So in other words, you could have in the withdrawal agreement, uh, this Northern Ireland only backstop, which would be the kind of the ultimate insurance policy. But then you could have sitting on top of that and perhaps inserted in such a way that gave it some kind of legally binding status that you would have superimposed on that in a way, uh, this UK-wide arrangement, which would say that actually the whole of the UK would remain in a customs union of some kind with the European Union. And so you wouldn't have a customs border in the Irish Sea. I think that what she said allows for that interpretation. And I think that uh, she you know, you know, she could quite easily have, have expressed it in much more robust terms. She could have said really what Downing Street was spinning, which was that she wouldn't accept any kind of uh, Northern Ireland only backstop in any form in the withdrawal agreement. But she didn't say that. And so but nonetheless, the language was strong and it was strong enough to pacify her backbenchers. What she left open, and this is where, if you look at her fourth point, and, the, and everybody was sort of scratching their heads yesterday saying, well, why was she just repeating this commitment to Northern Ireland business, that Northern Ireland business would continue to have unfettered access to the market in Great Britain, when nobody is suggesting that they wouldn't, because obviously the European Union doesn't care what goes into the market in Great Britain, because that would be outside the European Union and the single market. It's only concerned about what gets into Northern Ireland because that would be treated as part of the European single market. And so what that seems again to leave open, and I asked again, uh, asked Downing Street again today, just what's the story about regulatory barriers? Because the European Union basically has been proposing that you could have some light touch checks on goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland to make sure that nothing that's banned in the European Union would enter, uh, would enter Northern Ireland. And so... What's clear is that what she said there doesn't rule that out. It only rules out checks going from Northern Ireland to Great Britain, which nobody is proposing anyway. Right. Um, she had taken quite a battering over the weekend in the, the pro-Brexit British press um, and all sorts of anonymous sources coming forward saying her days as Conservative Party leader was numbered, were numbered and so on. Um, but one, one thing that struck me yesterday was um, her demeanour and her body language. She didn't really look like a woman under pressure. Well, she's so used to being under pressure. I think she starts every day under pressure and ends it relieved that she's still there. So uh, you're quite right. She was, uh, you know, there were these lurid quotes from, uh, from various unnamed backbenchers and former ministers in the newspapers over the weekend. One of them saying she was going to have to come to the uh, to the 1922 committee of uh, conservative backbenchers on 
Wednesday that it would be a killing field and that she should bring her own noose. Somebody else said the knife uh, has been heated. It will, be, uh, it will be stuck into her and she will be dead. Uh, so, uh, so this language was so grotesque that uh, everybody on all sides of the house got up uh, in the House of Commons yesterday to condemn it. And Steve Baker, who is uh, the kind of the organising brain behind the Brexiteers and the Conservative backbenchers, said that whoever said this, they should find out who said it, and that person should lose the whip, the Conservative whip, which is quite uh, tough talk, given that it, uh, most people think it came from his side. But what really triggered a lot of this anxiety was that uh, when uh, Theresa May was in Brussels last week, she kind of let slip that she was considering the idea of extending the transition period beyond December 2020. And that raised a number of questions. And uh, first of all, Brexiteers felt, well, then you're just stuck in, because essentially what the transition means is that you follow all the EU rules. They're treated as a member of the European Union. They continue to pay in, but they have no vote. They have no commissioner. They have no MEPs. They have no say in what goes on. And that you'd be extending that for another year, perhaps, where you'd continue to pay more money into the uh, European Union budget, maybe 10 billion, whatever amount it is. And you'd, you, you still wouldn't be able to make all these great trade deals they're hoping to make. So they were annoyed about it. But a lot of other people were annoyed about it. Too. So, for example, the Scottish Conservatives uh, realised that this would mean that they would still be in the transition by the time of the next Scottish Parliament elections in 2021. And that would mean they were still in the, in the common fisheries policy, which is very unpopular among Scottish fishermen. So they then uh, started kicking up. Then various other people on the Remain side said, this is just crazy and ridiculous. We really should just uh, go for a Norway option if you're going to you know, be messing around like this. So she seemed to be getting it from all sides. And what she seemed to have done on Monday was, first of all, all of these uh, vicious attacks on her in the press, everybody was so outraged by that language that that actually helped her. It kind of acted as a kind of protection against her, against anybody getting up in the House of Commons and saying something rude to her. And so there was none of that in the House of Commons. And also, because she struck this very tough tone, she uh, you know, inspired various backbenchers, like, again, Steve Baker, to say, uh, you know, she's made a stout defense of the union here. And uh, the DUP were, uh, you know, were looking over at it through narrowed eyes, and they're more suspicious than uh, conservative backbenchers are. But they still, they held their peace, more or less, and they wait and see what happens. But, uh, but for now, she seems to have bought herself time. There's a meeting of the 1922 committee uh, tomorrow on Wednesday. By yesterday, they hadn't sent out an invitation asking her to come and speak to them. Uh, there were some rumours uh, going round that uh, Graham Rady, the chairman of the 22 committee, had already received the 48 letters from MPs, which would trigger a leadership contest. But then we heard uh, earlier today that actually hadn't happened as yet. The fact is nobody knows except uh, Graham Brady, according to those who know him, not even Mrs. Brady knows. And so uh, he'll tell us once the uh, letters arrive. And actually to explain that, Dennis, if, if he receives 48 letters from backbenchers seeking a, a, um, a confidence motion or a vote of no confidence in her, does that, does that automatically trigger uh, such a, a procedure? Yes, it does. Now, you can send a letter in and you can then uh, decide to take it back again later if the mood 
changes or whatever. So uh, so there's all, there are all these reports of people putting letters in, but also of people taking letters out. But once it gets to 48 letters, then Graham Brady has to uh, call uh, a vote of confidence in the prime minister. Now, to, uh, to defeat the, uh, the prime minister, to knock her out, you have to get 159 votes. So, uh, you know, up until now, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the view was that maybe there were 60, maybe 70, but nobody thought there were quite 100 votes. Uh, but the, the key thing, as far as she's concerned, is that if she wins a confidence motion, and so if she gets 159 votes, then she's safe for another 12 months, so they can't go after her again. And so in uh, so some people who are her supporters would say, well, maybe that's the, the best thing for her. You know, she uh, she has the confidence vote and then she's rock solid for 12 months. But talking to a conservative this morning, this person was saying to me, well, you know, the problem is that uh, with this 12 months, a lot of people who wouldn't have been inclined to vote against her if they think about the idea of going through another 12 months with her as leader, it's all just, it feels like all too much. So this person was suggesting maybe she's going to have to uh, say, look, if I am re-elected uh, or if I win the confidence vote, I'm not going to uh, regard myself as safe. I'm going to allow you to uh, knock me out before uh, 12 months are up. Who knows what's going to happen there? But as of now, uh, you know, it seems that as of today, at least, you don't have the 48. Uh, and the betting still would be on her probably surviving a confidence vote right now. Certainly what seems to have happened is that she is in a healthier position today than she was yesterday morning, Monday morning. And if she can, uh, you know, carry on through for the next couple of weeks, then we've got the budget next Monday and the votes on that and the days following that. The DUP had uh, a couple of weeks ago been threatening all kinds of terrible things. They haven't. They, they've gone quiet in the last few days, and so if uh, you know they've nothing really to rebel against as yet. So if she gets through all of that, then the negotiators uh, can, uh, in theory, at least go back into this negotiating tunnel in Brussels, where the two sets of negotiators they uh, go in together. They don't communicate with the outside world to any great extent, and they see how far they can get. And what Theresa May's hope would be is that they can make enough progress that the European Union says, I know we said we uh, have no plans for another summit in November, but actually we've made so much progress that it's time to call uh, another summit in late November. And let's get this deal done and get it through. And now, before she crosses that hurdle tomorrow, the, the, the meeting of the backbenchers, she had a cabinet meeting today. Tuesday. And even that wasn't necessarily going to be straightforward for her, I think. Do we know how that went? Well, they had a discussion about Brexit and uh, they spoke about her speech and they spoke about the various, uh, uh, you know, the various elements of, uh, you know, uh, of what it meant in terms of, um, of the four tests she had set out. And uh, according to Downing Street, uh, the cabinet was happy about that. They also, curiously enough, had a, a discussion of the union. Uh, the United the Union of the United Kingdom and uh, apparently David Liddington, who's the uh, effectively her deputy and who's kind of responsible for relations with the other, uh, you know, with with the three devolved uh, parts of the United Kingdom. He spoke. The Scottish Secretary spoke. The Welsh Secretary spoke. And Karen Bradley, uh, the Northern Ireland Secretary, spoke. And uh, and we were asking today, well, why 
why have this conversation? I mean, the Union has been around, you know, I mean, since 1706 in this case of Scotland, 1801, the case of Ireland. So, like, you know, why now? Why today? And they said, well, you know, the cabinet talks about all kinds of things of interest. And today we spoke about the Union. And I think we can conclude that they're in favour of it. <laughs> and Dennis, just to come back uh, to, to wrap to wrap this up, to come back to the point you were making about, you know, uh, I mean, if you're re- reading the British the press over the weekend, you would think this idea of extending the transition period was dead in the water because she had no support for it. And then, as you mentioned earlier, she came into the House of Commons yesterday, not only talked, kept the extension, um, if you like, alive, but but actually talked about it possibly being up to a year, she, she mentioned uh, it, it couldn't last beyond the next election. So that seemed to yes. p- potentially push it out for a very long time. Th- does all of this suggest that Mrs May is a much kind of wilier political operator than she's given credit for and that she's very good at keeping one step ahead of her, her detractors? Well, she moves in a sort of a crab-like uh, movement. And so you don't really notice her making progress because she seems to be going all over the place. And, uh, you know, she certainly makes heavy weather off it. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right. Last week, this uh, idea of the extension of the of the transition seemed like a terrible idea and it was never going to happen. What she said yesterday really was, look, when we get to the end of the transition in December 2020, we'll be able to choose between going into this new temporary customs arrangement, which is not quite the same as the customs union, and will probably involve some kind of cost to business. Or we can say to business, I'll tell you what, since we're eventually, like in a few months' time, going to go into the new future relationship with the EU, whatever that is, uh, instead of, you know, changing your uh, systems again, uh, you know, in a few months' time, why don't you just stick with this transition? And we can we carry on with the transition for another few months. So that now, uh, if you look at uh, you know at where we are now, this is now accepted. It seems by the cabinet the idea that uh, you know the, there is there should be an option at least to extend the transition, and it's even accepted by uh, many of the Brexiteers as being an option that ought to be there. So so that certainly is progress. The other thing which is there is that. You know, they all seem to accept now that there will be a backstop of some kind. The question is, you know, exactly what is the nature of the backstop? And they also seem to accept that at least part of that backstop will be Northern Ireland specific. So they seem to be saying her bottom line now seems to be, as it sort of has been for a while, there can be no customs separation or differentiation between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. So in other words, no customs border down the Irish Sea. But you could have some differentiation on the regulation of goods, rather as you do now with animals and animal health, so that, uh, you know, they check animals when they're going uh, on the ferry from Scotland over to Northern Ireland, because uh, Ireland, the, the island of Ireland is a single uh, sanitary and phytosanitary unit. And so they're saying, you know, you, you, you know, you could possibly have something. So in her own crab-like way, she has progressed beyond where maybe many would have thought she could have. Now, the question is, can she keep it going for another few weeks? And then if she gets a deal, the really big question, of course, is can she get it through the House of Commons? And if she can't get all of her own people behind it, can she persuade some Labour MPs to cross uh, the floor? And I think what she would do if she did get, uh, you know, what the, what the party would do or the government would do if she does get a deal and brings it back from Brussels is that they'll sort of wrap her in the flag and they'll kind of push her through the chamber and hope that that everybody follows in tow. (laughs) That's quite an image. Dennis, thanks for that. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather. 
the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk control. Now to the story that has dominated international headlines for the past three weeks, and that is the murder on October 2nd in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul of the dissident Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Our Middle East analyst and resident expert on Saudi affairs, Michael Jansen, joins me in studio this week to discuss the latest on this story. Michael, it's good to see you in Dublin. Um, I'm going to come back to you um, about the reason for your visit to Dublin, which is the launch of your book, Windows and Interesting Times. Um, But we're going to talk first about this Khashoggi story. And I use the word sensational there in my intro. It's, It's not a word we tend to... Here too often at the Irish Times, we tend to take a more sober look at events, but the developments in this story have been coming at a breathtaking pace and and the word sensational seems quite appropriate. Two main developments today, Tuesday. First, we had the speech in Parliament by the Turkish President, Tayyip Erdogan, in which he described Mr Khashoggi's murder as savage and said whoever ordered it must be brought to account. And then Sky News was reporting as we began recording that some of Mr Khashoggi's body parts had been found in the Saudi Consul General's garden in Istanbul. I think we'll start with what we know about, what's confirmed, and that's, of course, the, the Erdogan speech. He said he would tell the naked truth about Mr. Khashoggi's death. Did he deliver that? Uh, I don't think so. I think he disappointed. He said that the people who were involved had to be brought to justice and that there should be a neutral examination of the facts. But he didn't really give all of the details, and he also did not produce the recordings which the Turks say they have. Uh, He is playing with the Saudis like a cat plays with mice, I think. And um, now the Turkish press uh, is reporting that the aim of the killing of Khashoggi was to start destabilizing Turkey because Turkey is a backer of the Muslim Brotherhood, and both the Saudis and the Emiratis are absolutely terrified of the Muslim Brotherhood, Uh, although they don't have large numbers of Muslim brothers in their countries. But they uh, feel the Muslim Brotherhood is a a rival and uh, a dangerous rival uh, for their kind of monarchy. Because the Muslim Brotherhood, of course, arose to power in Egypt through elections. And is, is it the contention of the Turkish press that these two crown princes are then somehow working together to destabilize Turkey in some way because of its association with the, the Muslim Brotherhood? Yes. And uh, um, President Erdogan of Turkey is a Muslim brother. I mean, his party, the Justice and Development Party, is an offshoot or a clone of the Muslim Brotherhood. And there are a lot of Muslim brothers from Egypt who are living in Turkey and who are allowed to organize politically. They have radio stations and they have uh, sort of activist groups. And Khashoggi was also um, working with some of these groups. And he was a Muslim Brotherhood member from the 1970s. And that was when the Brotherhood was tolerated in in Saudi Arabia. And also, the Brotherhood was used by the Saudis 
and the United States to destabilize some of the nationalist uh, regimes in the Middle East, the secular nationalists, e Egypt and Syria, um, and even Jordan. What do you think Erdogan's aim was today? I mean, you said it, it's hard to know what he was at, but there, there, some people have speculated that he might use the situation to try to drive some kind of bargain with Saudi Arabia. But so far, there's no sign of that, is there? He seems to no, be I don't going think for the juggler. It, no, I don't think there is a sign of a bargain. And I think he is leaking out information little by little. We still don't have these famous recordings. Um, we have some uh, video images of people who were entering the Saudi consulate we have video images of someone who was supposed to be uh, leaving the consulate dressed in his clothes. A very bad body double, I have to yes, say. Yes, a very bad body. A little bit too fat, actually. Yes. <laughs> and they went stupidly to a mosque in, in central Istanbul. The man went into the bathroom, took off Khashoggi's clothes, and then went out with his own clothes on and they went to a restaurant and had dinner and disposed of the bag of the victim's clothing in a dumpster. And all of this is on, it is on uh, YouTube. <laughs> yeah, it seemed an extraordinarily ham-fisted operation. One of the things I was struck by by Erdogan's speech today was he mentioned King Salman of Saudi Arabia in neutral to positive terms a couple of times. He made absolutely no reference to the Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, suggest that actually there's something almost personal, that he, that this is, the Crown Prince is being personally targeted in this. I think so, but King Salman is, he has some amount of dementia, and he's in his 80s, he's 82 or 83. And this Crown Prince, Crown Prince Mohammed, has stuck by his father in order to get himself groomed to take over. He was educated in Saudi Arabia. He didn't go abroad like many of the princes. He has lived in palaces his whole life, right next to his father. He became his father's favorite son and confidant. And his father was a very powerful figure in the kingdom. He was the governor of Riyadh, which is the capital of Saudi Arabia. And he was the crown prince under King Abdullah. And he also belongs to a very important branch of the family, of the Al Saud family, where there were seven brothers, who, who some of whom have inherited the throne. So the idea of Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman was always to get himself into a position of power. Whether he thought he could be crown prince or not, as early as he became crown prince, it, one doesn't know. But he is, ever since he rose to power in early 2015, when his father inherited the throne, he has been dominating in the scene. When he was elevated to the position he's in at such a young age, he's only 33 now, there must have been a lot of disappointed people in the Saudi royal court and a lot of other pretenders to the throne. They must be relishing seeing what's happening to him now or seeing that essentially how catastrophic his term is proving to be. Well, he uh, jumped over two uh, people who were in line ahead of him. The first person he, he eliminated was paid off, as far as I, w I was told. And the second person, who was Mohammed bin Naif, 
who had been the um, the head of the anti-terrorism organization in Saudi Arabia and the interior ministry. He was invited to the palace one evening, and he was surrounded by bodyguards of Mohammed bin Salman. His mobile phones were taken away. He was locked in a room. He was told either you resign the position or else. And the, he resigned the position the next morning, and he's been under house arrest ever since. So what do you think is happening in the Saudi royal court now? You, you, you're a very close observer of what happens there. There must be some pressure, a lot of pressure coming on the crown prince to resign or step aside. What, what do you think is going on there now? Well, I think he has uh, terrorized a lot of opposition, potential opposition members. Uh, one has to remember that he locked up 326 leading figures in Saudi Arabia, princes, businessmen, former ministers, contractors, in this huge hotel in Riyadh and um, squeezed them for money, which he said had been received uh, corruptly. And uh, some 56 of them are still in jail because they haven't been... Uh, haven't given over the money that they were expected to give. And he has arrested, in addition, a, ho a whole lot of other people, clerics, both uh, moderate clerics and reactionary clerics, and liberal critics and conservative critics. He has put them in jail, so he has no opposition at all. And amongst those people he has put in jail are some of the women who were agitating to drive. So he granted the driving, but the women who started the campaign are in jail. So do you think he's secure in his position, notwithstanding the difficulties that he's caused for Saudi Arabia? Well, it's difficult to say. His father will back him up, I, I, I'm certain. I think it will be very difficult for his father to be removed. And people are saying that if this present crown prince does not is not moderated, and he continues along this path of um, experimental and uh, difficult uh, initiatives, embarrassing initiatives for the country, then he has to be curbed or else. But there, there's no one or no group of princes who will stick their necks out in order to get rid of him. Michael, I don't, don't want to dwell too much on the that body part story I mentioned at the outset because it's not confirmed as, as we speak. But if it is confirmed that body parts have been found in the Saudi Consul General's garden, is that going to make it even more difficult for the Saudis to continue this line that this was somehow a renegade or rogue operation? Well, I think that line has been completely destroyed now. And also, some of the press is reporting that... Uh, the Saudi sent a team of three people who arrived on the 1st of October before the 15 people who arrived on the 2nd. So they were already scouting out the situation. And uh, Khashoggi had an appointment on the 2nd at 1 o'clock to get his papers for his divorce. So he had made that appointment on the 28th of September. And so he, he was set up. So, and that is how they caught him. Okay. Well, Michael, we'll continue to monitor the developments in that story. As I mentioned, 
at the outset. You're here to launch your book, Windows and Interesting Times. Now, the publisher, um, Remal Books, yes. uh, tells us the book, it's not a history of the past half century of the Middle East. It's not a memoir and it's not an autobiography. So what I want to ask you is, what is it? Well, it is exactly what I called the book, Windows on Interesting Times. Uh, it is it is a impressionist book about the events in the Middle East, uh, which the the book the idea for the book came when I was covering Tahrir Square in 2011. So I started the book with Tahrir Square, and then I followed the train of thought from there, from when I first went to Egypt. The people I met then went back to Tahrir Square, and it goes through uh, my time in the Middle East in a non-chronological way, and it is reporting events in the Middle East and the people I met with the idea of trying to explain how they think about things. This has always been my view, that we journalists should try to get into the minds of the people we are writing about, and instead of telling them what they do, what they should do. We should report about what they want to do. Well, Michael, I look forward to reading the book. Um, we look forward to um, continuing to read your, your reports and analysis on the Middle East for the Irish Times. Thanks a lot for coming in today. Most welcome. Michael Johnson's book, Windows and Interesting Times, will be launched on Wednesday evening in Books Upstairs on Delir Street in Dublin. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.